What are you, are you, are you going to talk while you're thirsty though? Like, you know, you get the beer, you gotta, you gotta take a couple sips and then, you know, you know, before you know it, it's halfway gone. Hello everybody and welcome into another edition of Talgo TV, the only podcast that calls in the media when they don't get what they want. I'm David Arroyo, joined as always by my friend Tom Shively. Tom, it's a late night. It's the day before this episode's going to come out, which we normally don't do for this, uh, for Talgo TV. But Tom, how you doing on this Wednesday night? I'm doing all right, man. It's all about controlling the media. So good move. And I'm, um, you know, looking forward to season three. Now, does it break too much of a fourth wall for me to say that we are recording on a Wednesday night as opposed to a Thursday? Like, I don't, do I normally say it's a Sunday when we're recording and then releasing them on Monday? I mean, I think we've gone like, we've gone morning night before. So I think we, we've, we've covered ourselves for, for bad morning episodes. I don't know if we've gone like specific day before, but, you know, let the viewers know, you know, we want them to be, uh, as in tune with our lives as possible. So I like that. We want them to be active participants, you know, maybe following us on Twitter at TalgoPod and our other Twitters are linked in the show notes of this episode. You know, just, I'm just saying, that's maybe what I want them to do as they're listening to this. You never know, man. Engagement, everything. (laughs) All right, Tom. So we are on to season three of The Wire. Uh, Before we talk about season three, real quick, season one and two, how would you rank them? I think we kind of talked about this last episode, but curious. To me, I'd go one, one, two, two, but it's tighter towards the end of season two than I thought it was originally. I think season two may have finished a little bit stronger than season one did. I wasn't a huge fan of the season one finale. I think season two is better, but that's just because I think the Greek is a better adversary for everything they're doing than Avon was in season one. I think Stringer is a stronger adversary than all of them, but we didn't get enough of Stringer in season uh, two. But if season three is any indication, we're going to be getting a lot of Stringer Bell. And let's start there. This... This whole first four episodes of season three, there is a heavy focus, I feel, on the way Stringer is now operating and how his main goal is not to take territory and take over places, but to just coexist with everybody else. Because in his mind, if they're doing well and Prop Joe is doing well and now this new character, Marlo, is doing well, then everyone can work in harmony you can all work together and there can be no issues how do you feel about kind of the way he's handling things so far uh beginning of season three it's a little surprising to me and i think it's surprising to a lot of the other guys in stringer circle too because you see him in those meetings where you know guys like Bodie and Pooh are, are kind of questioning you know they're on our corner like what are we gonna do about it we're just gonna let them sell there and stringer's just kind of like yeah you don't worry about it like it's not your turn to talk and it, it kind of feels like he has this this bigger plan that he's not really sharing with anybody else. And you know, he's had that for a certain extent for, for most of the series so far. So maybe in that sense, it's not as surprising as I'm making it out to be. But definitely, you, you kind of feel like there's some sort of undertone with, with Stringer, some sort of ulterior motive, whether, it, whether it's been decided or not. Stringer obviously sees a bigger picture that he either can't or doesn't want to explain to everybody else yet. And we really haven't seen what that is either. Well, the only thing we've seen from him, and I'm, I'm again curious your thoughts on this, but we've seen him talking directly with a bunch of city councilmen and some congressmen, I believe it was, uh, the congressman from season one. And they allude to the fact that he still owns a lot of properties that are now being looked at and bought up by the government to do some, some projects for. And so it's kind of revealed to us that 
the government is heavily involved in whatever Stringer has going on and are kind of just okay with what he has going on. I'm kind of curious how you read it because that's how I read it. I read it as they know and they just don't care. Yeah, I think you got some hints of that in season one. I think you kind of you kind of touched on that a little bit. It feels like we're headed towards this. This is the government corruption season. I think I think you see that with with a guy on the council. That I'm sure we're going to talk about in a little bit, and you obviously see that with Stringer and, and some of the I don't know if you can call them old friends, but you know some of the some of the familiar faces from season one. And you, you kind of wondered it, a lot of the game is about having connections in high places, and Stringer feels like at least diplomatically has a few more of those than Avon did and he's been a little smarter in terms of trying to you know knowing when to when to use those connections and kind of how to better position himself and you kind of see he he's again showing why he's taking more of a leadership role than than Avon is even though Avon probably about to get out yeah, well, Stringer, to me, in some ways feels almost untouchable because yeah, he has his stuff going on with Avon but like everything there, he is hands-on enough that he's able to control it, but he's hands-off enough that you can't actually pin charges to him. It's almost impossible to pin charges to him. And the things he's super hands-on with are essentially clean businesses. And you saw that in season one, the way he handles his businesses that aren't the drug trade is very clean. You don't really see any act- illegal activity going on there. And so it, it sets him up to be this kind of person who I could see, you know, continuing to do both. But in the end, he's the one guy they're never able to get and never able to put in prison. The funny thing is with that, like, he's been so, so careful so far, like you mentioned. And the fact that he's kind of now willing to include some of these other groups you know coexist with them feels like he's opening himself up a little bit more and i think you're getting hints of that too with you know you see mcnulty spying on him in the restaurant you know in the car calling stringer and just not hanging up to you know make stringer think someone's on his tail and you you kind of see the mind games a little bit that stringer so used to playing that, that mcnulty's doing and you know he's been on stringer from the start he said you know to daniels to to freeman whoever it's been that you know stringer's the target here no matter what else we get and it's kind of budding towards those two are going to have some sort of clash eventually. And, and McNulty's kind of seen through Stringer from the start and, you know, even expresses regret that, man, we really should have got him at the end of season one. We really should have, how do we let him go? And that's kind of been the biggest regret so far, at least in his side of the story. Well, let's talk then about the police force. There is something else involving Stringer in them that we'll get back to. But since you brought him up, let's talk about McNulty and everything that's going on there. They are essentially still trying to get Stringer, Prop Joe, all that. They're trying to take them down. They're trying to do it through Cheese, who is one of Prop Joe's main guys. And the way they think they almost get him is he kills his dog and he's talking on the phone about literally his dog. And so when he says dog, they give up that they have this wiretap. And so everything goes cold. McNulty is really still pushing this, is really defiant of what Daniel's orders are because they have a new target. And is having the first real clashes we've seen with Lester. Uh, what did you kind of make of McNulty's role in all of this and his kind of continued bad boy streak, if you will, into season three? Yeah, I don't think Lester really likes taking sides, and McNulty rubs him the wrong way, kind of calling him out. You know, like what? Like you're not going to stand for this, Lester, are you? you know, you're not going to let this kind of get away. And Freeman just is kind of caught in the middle there, and he doesn't like it, and he stands up to McNulty and. 
and you kind of get why it rubs in the wrong way. Freeman's established. He's been there a while. McNulty, just very abrasive guy, you know, as he's been the entire series. So it doesn't surprise me a lot. And it's, I think seeing him on to Stringer is kind of, he's not going to stop until he gets Stringer. And that kind of feels like it's going to be really his only focus until until they get Stringer in cuffs. Or, you know, maybe they don't ever get him in cuffs. And But he's going to keep working on it until they do. Well, it's pretty clear to me, right? Because they set up this new target that they essentially have. And then McNulty finds out some stuff. Lester's like, you're late. I found this out hours ago after you stormed out of here. Like, I'm giving you one more day to get something we can work with so that we I can actually bring this to Daniels and we can do something about it. But I, I really like that dynamic of... This is like a ghost for McNulty. He he feels this obligation to, we need to get this guy. We have to get this guy. Where Lester was like, yeah, I would like to get him. We've been doing this. I think they say at one point for like six months. He's like, we've been doing this for six months and we have nothing. At some point, we have to just move on and do police work because people are dying. People are getting shot. And there are other targets out there who can keep us, keep, keep, what's the word I'm looking for? Keep the city safe. And... It goes back to the thing we just said about Stringer, which is he's all right now about cooperation. Don't beat people down. Don't kill people because he realizes if we do that stuff, the police are going to be hot on our tail and they're going to have something to work with. And that's killing McNulty that there is nothing that he can go after Stringer for right now because he's so clean and doing everything the right way. What what did what else in terms of the police since we're on this side of things now? What did you make of you know I'm going to transition this kind of into personal things. I'm going to call this whole section of what we're going to talk about the personal issues of season three of The Wire. We'll start with Daniels. Daniels, his wife is running for a congressional seat or a council seat. I can't exactly remember what she's running for, but she's running for some sort of political office that brings. Daniels into it because essentially Daniels is still waiting on his promotion because the mayor won't push it through because of his wife running for this seat. But him and his wife aren't even together anymore. He's just making public face with her to help her get this seat, but they're not even together anymore. And I'm just super interested into Daniels basically giving up his entire personal life for the job. He's so invested in the job that he's willing to put on this facade and just give up his entire personal life. Yeah, the people, uh, Daniel's really tired of being treated like a pawn. I think, you know, season one, you see it a lot with, you know, him kind of not getting the promotions. And, you know, oh, if you do this for us, then we'll consider you the promotion. You know, we'll consider you. We won't even give you the promotion. You know, if, if you if you bring in this case, you know, we'll, we'll consider moving you to major, you know, whatever it may be. It's happened so far. And now it's just, oh, you know, you're a. Uh, you're a, an upstanding black police officer in in the Baltimore department. That would re- look really good on a campaign. So you know we want you to to be there, just be a smiling face. And and he's fed up with it. You know who could blame him? It's it's, it's the natural human response to you know say I'm tired of being used. And I, I think the much more interesting subplot with him is like the McNulty and, and Pearlman side of it. But they kind of brushed that under the rug. I, I thought that was kind of interesting how they how they handled that one there that was a relationship i didn't see coming at all that one surprised me a lot so it kind of tells you where daniels is to to just kind of be casual about it and guy who's so who seems so meticulous in in every aspect of life up to this point just just kind of being out there and being a little mcnulty-esque 
Yeah, that, that one really did come out of nowhere, and I expected that to be a major point of tension moving forward, and literally within, like, an episode, they've resolved it, and it's like they've moved past that at least McNulty and Daniels have, and... I mean, maybe it comes up later in the season and there's some sort of big blow up that happens where it's like revealed to the rest of the team that this is a thing. But to me, just that whole thing is super weird and again, came out of nowhere. I don't even understand the need for it unless it's some sort of way to build tension again later. And it's just a way to pit the team against each other in like a big moment. I feel like that's what it has to be at this point. Like it, it was fishy that they resolved it at one bar conversation. Yeah, literally one conversation that for some reason when we cut... All right, this always bothers me, but how come when we cut into the show, right, where they cut into the scene, they're halfway through their beers, basically done their beers, but they make it seem like they've been sitting there for 40 minutes and haven't said a word to each other because they try and drop us in like this is the start of the conversation, but it's clearly not. It's the end of the conversation if you're almost done your beers. So it's like a super weird way to go. I don't know. That's just something that really bothers me. Uh, do you want to listen to the whole how was your day talk do you want the whole you know oh man 95 traffic was really backed up getting over here man like eh, cores isn't that good i'd rather have the miller like you want you want the whole side talk before all i'm asking is that they have full beers that's all i'm asking because then it gives the illusion that they're like they came here to talk about something and they're just they're going to talk about it and then daniels is going to be like eh like i don't even want to finish this here mcnulty you can have it i'm going to leave like that's are you going to talk while you're thirsty though like you know you get the beer you gotta you gotta take a couple sips and then you know you know before you know it, it's halfway gone listen every time we cut into bunk and mcnulty there is you can tell they've either been drinking for a while or they just got there and they're just starting for some reason this one scenario it is just super awkward their beers are almost all gone but it seems like they have just started this conversation it's super weird i think it's just bad writing in this one scenario well you know especially with bunk and mcnulty they they would never be caught dead with a full drink in front of them you know that, that that's coming down as soon as as soon as they get, I even texted you, you know, Bunk, I'm willing to say, greatest drunk actor of all time. Phenomenal stuff. Every time he's drunk, the uh, the jukebox scene, maybe my favorite scene of the series so far, where he goes up and, and pretends to be drunk. Great acting. Loved it. Yeah, I think, honestly, like, every time he's drunk, it's so believable. And of course, this goes without saying, the actor's not actually drunk. And so the fact that it's so believable, incredible. Just anytime you need like drunk guy in a script, just hire this man. I don't even know the actor's name. Hire this man. Wendell he, Pierce. Shout out Wendell Pierce. Wendell Pierce, the goat drunk actor in this show. Tom, let's talk about some other personal relationships. Speaking of drinking and degenerates and all the things that you can characterize under McNulty, Turns out Kima also has some of those qualities to the point where she actually points out at one point, am I becoming McNulty in one of the episodes? It's alluded to, but not confirmed, but it's alluded to that Kima has now cheated on her partner uh, after they've had the kid. There's a lot of issues going on there where it seems like she didn't really want to be a parent and she's not really ready for that life. And it just really seems like Kima is struggling with this new life in the, a lot of the same ways we saw McNulty struggling with his divorce in that first season. I think you get kind of get to the crux of, of Kima's issue with that line where she goes, oh, you know, we're dating. I'm a cop. You know, it's not a problem. I'm doing cop things. You know, we, we start to live together. I'm a cop. I... I it, I'm doing cop things, you know, we, we get married, I'm having cop things, and then suddenly it's an issue, like, what changed, like, Kima, and her mind has always been Kima, and obviously the family dynamic 
does change that, and Kima's not quite ready to step into that. And I think, you know, you, you spend enough time with McNulty, you pull enough 12-hour overnight shifts with McNulty, it starts to rub off on you. So who can blame her? Well, it's funny because it's not only that. There are multiple moments where characters point out that she's being very McNulty. Because what's the one scene where they're arguing about whether, like, who the new target is? And McNulty's not there because he's investigating Stringer. And she starts going off about how we're just going to let Stringer walk. We're just going to let them get away with this. We're going to let him stay on the street. And then it's Prez who says says McNulty was here in spirit or something like that. And it's just another example of just McNulty's really rubbed off on her. And it's something I pointed out in season one that she seemed not very invested in doing this kind of police work until McNulty really drug her into it. So I feel like he has some sort of influence, if, if not spoken, it's pretty obvious, some sort of influence over her that gets her to do things that, again, we've kind of pointed out, are very McNulty-esque, and I think that could lead her down a dark place the rest of the season. I, I don't see a lot of these marriages and partnerships lasting throughout the rest of the season. Like, Daniels is clearly already over, who knows what's going to happen with him and uh, what's her name? Rhonda or whatever her name is. Yeah. McNulty is down. Man, that's bad. a weird story too. With at the baseball game, like peering at her in the first row. Tough look. Yeah. The, the personal relationships in this show are, are not going well, but let, let me go now to the character that I have found most interesting, not even close in this series so far. And that is the man who, gets out of prison in episode two. I'm trying to get his exact name. I just saw it a second ago and it is completely skipping my mind. His name is Dennis Cuddy Wise. He is going to be paroled uh, after his 14 year sentence. And basically Avon comes up to him and is like, yo, like I'm going to need soldiers out there. So like call this number when you get out. And what you see over the course of this four episode arc and again he's the most interesting character in these first four episodes is he starts out doing the drug trade gets threatened by one of marlo's people after he says the package is stolen he doesn't really believe it but he just kind of lets it go starts working in like landscaping trying to make an honest living and then by episode four he's back in the drug trade just because he's not making enough money to be basically be able to live the life he wants and i think kind of misses the game a little bit i i just find his whole character to be super fascinating because he's somebody who clearly wants out but feels compelled to come back for some reason well because you go and you see him i i would only assume it was an ex-girlfriend or something he sees at the at the school or wherever it was that she was at work and she's kind of talking she's clearly moved on and and you know can't blame her he was in there for 14 years so you kind of see that, oh, he wanted to leave, but, but you know, it's a guy that life has passed him by for 14 years. And so it's kind of as much as you want to leave, you know, the game has always been the game. And, you know, he even says, that, you know, not not a lot of things change. You know, it's, uh, you know, changes a little bit with uh, Marlo's boy, like, you know, when he goes and, uh, you know, gives him the product and then tries to get the money back and he goes, oh, the game's changed and, you know, basically sends him away empty handed. But, that's always been what he's known and and you know you always find a way back to it and certainly he's interesting kind of you know you kind of get the he's he's kind of the connection between avon and stringer like coming out on avon's orders and then he's actually out here in the streets and you know it's not at all like what avon told him it would be yeah it's i just feel bad for him because he he when he meets with that girlfriend right i think part of it is is 
wanting to maybe get back with her because you see his reaction when he sees that she has a kid, which clearly indicates that she's probably with somebody because she is a little cold to him, but she also wants to help him and mentions, you know, I'm going to put in a word for you. There's this job opening in basically what's like a landscaping job at the school, but the dude knows literally nothing about landscaping. You see that in the third episode, but she's willing to help him in some way and try and get him out of the game. And I don't know what it is that changes between episode two, where she has that conversation with him, and then episode three, where he has the conversation with the man who was consistently hiring him to do the landscaping work. But something changes, and by the end of the third episode, he's back in the game. Episode four, he's deep back in the game with... Um, what's his name? Not Pooh, but the other one, Bodhi. Bodhi. And, you know, they go to that party together and it's clear that he wanted so badly to get out and then there he is right back in the thick of things. And again, I just, I found his arc to be super interesting just in the way, kind of how you described, you know, a, a desire to get out. But, you know, when you're in prison for 14 years, a lot of things change and it's hard to adjust that it's the cruelty of the prison system. And you see him with his parole officer who's like, who's like, yo, get a job. Like, I'm not giving you money. Like, go get a job. And it's just another failure of the prison system because is the point to rehabilitate or is it to to punish? I agree with you on a lot of what you said so far. Um, the one thing you missed is he's not been the most interesting character of the series so far. It's been our boy, Carcetti. Come on. With the council, we finally get that that corruption angle of the council. We get the the Tom, dirty hold on, hold on. scumbag of politics. All right, we'll go ahead. <laughs> hell of a quote there. Hell of a quote. Please tell people who is Carcetti. You just kind of jumped right into it. Who is Carcetti? So he is basically a local councilman. He kind of has his hands in with the police. He He's not afraid to ask for favors. He's not afraid to you know, blackmail the police, do whatever he has to do to kind of get what he wants. You see him kind of wanting in with with that side of things, wanting in with some of the some of the detectives. And, you know, he goes far as when he doesn't get he wants when he doesn't get what he wants, you know, we mentioned he he calls the media in and kind of puts them on blast. You know, like what are you doing? There's murders up in the city. It's a, you know, what are you really solving here? And so he kind of puts them on blast and we find out he's he's all been kind of playing at this mayoral campaign and that's kind of been the end goal for him and he he's willing to do whatever it takes and you know it's it's a it's a story that we're not that unfamiliar with in in american politics you know at the city level national level state level whatever it is you know politicians willing to kind of do whatever they can to to get ahead and you see him being the face of that at least so far in this series well let's talk about first of all but i i can't believe you didn't mention this somehow Carcetti is played by the same actor who plays Peter Baelish in Game of Thrones. I totally see why they went and casted him to be Peter Baelish, because they're both very shysty individuals. And he he's shysty in several ways, right? Because not only is he actively like putting people in bad situations, because Burrell is right in the middle of all of this, like fight back and forth between the mayor and Carcetti. And I just feel so bad for Burrell, but also Burrell's a terrible person, so I don't really feel that bad for him. But also he's shysty in a sense of like you see him with like his wife and their kid, and he care he's a you know so invested as a dad, but at the same time he's like, ah, oh, I gotta stay late for another for another one of these events. You know how it goes. 
and he's literally just staying late so he can cheat on his wife. He has nothing else he has to do, but it's heavily implied that he's staying there to cheat on his wife. He is so shysty, and I, I, yeah, he's super interesting. It's just the politics of it all I find kind of boring, to be honest. I, I think the Baelish, the Baelish aspect of it definitely makes it more interesting to me. That that might wear off over time. I'm trying to think like. Is McNulty like Jon Snow then? Like, what do we? How far can we go with this? Like, I feel like there's a Stark Lannister kind of thing with with the cops and the uh, and and the the drug guys. So you know, maybe the drug people are the Lannisters. I don't know. Maybe I'm looking too much into it, but definitely the Baelish connection there. And I, the politics thing is super interesting to me because I think it, it was only a matter of time before that kind of got involved. I think you could only go so far with with the cops and and crime and. And the natural tie, if you're looking at it, the series as a whole, like, oh, there's issues on both sides. Of course, they're going to bring in politics eventually. And that's kind of where we come out with that. So I'm into Carcetti, but like they give you a lot of the mayor in these episodes. Oh, well, not yeah. a lot. The mayor's not good. So boring. He he has nothing interesting going on. And they do this stuff. I think they just well, do well, it. All right. Let's be honest. They do that on purpose. You have to think because they're setting up for, you know, Carcetti to be the mayor, you would think. Well, they're, they're setting up that, but I also think they're trying to set up further conflict with Burrell because he is a prominent part of everything they do with the mayor, uh, and he's kind of kind of the tie between both of them, between Carcetti and the mayor. I also, uh, this is a prominent part of the episodes too, but they do a lot of stuff where they're showing those meetings with Rawls and Burrell with all of the majors and uh, lieutenants, I think it is, at all of these departments and they show a lot of those meetings and how they're trying to put pressure to get crime down and i just don't find a lot of that stuff interesting i just again it's not i they show it a lot they spend a lot of time showing it and i don't know what the end goal of it is other than to continually beat us over the head with hey we gotta get gotta get crime down we gotta get the murders down and like i get it you've told me a hundred times at this point that the murders are currently high in the show and you'll want to get them down i understand I do like when they go to the, uh, they bring everybody into the school and they, they try to have like a, a community talk with, with a lot of the kids and none of them are having it like, hey, can I go to the bathroom? Like, hey, I got to go too. That was a great part. And the, it just kind of shows you the the lack of a hold they have on the community. And I think you see with like McNulty and those guys, they have, albeit not a ton of a hold because you see them, you know, like they see Pooh and and Bodhi at the movies like hey man these guys are always chasing us they always arrest us but they never turn out with anything and you know you see they at least it seems like are a little bit more involved in in trying to stop the drug trade than than Burrell and his guys are and it is a little boring now that you mention it like that part of it it does feel a little repetitive yeah they, they show you a lot of it and the guy they really are focused on too is Major Colvin who he is set to retire. They've hit on that a lot. He's like, I, I got six months or whatever he's got, which I mean, tried and true sign that this man is not making it to the end of this season. Like put a huge asterisk next to him. He is going to die before the season is over. Mark my words. I am positive of it. But they, they the tie in with him is, you know, Herc and Carver are over on the West side now working back in narcotics and 
really back to how they were in season one, just roughing kids up, not doing great police work. And it what a fall from grace from where they were. Like I was into them by the end of season one, season two, they complained a lot about their role and season three, they have are back to square one. Did they ever, were they ever at grace to fall from? Like, I feel like that's, that's a bold statement. I feel like they were always kind of the slimy police officers. They, they were, but I felt like, I felt like at the end of season one, like Herc was in specific had really grown from where he had started in the beginning of the season and really was thinking like a good police officer. Carver was always kind of like sketchy, both ratting on Daniels, always the one like trying to steal money and whatnot. But then like season two rolls around, they're both all in on it. By the end of season two, they're like, man, we're not even doing real police work. They're like terrible at their jobs by the end of season two. And then season three, all they do is rough kid, like literally kids. They're just roughing kids up and it's, it's insane. It's like, what did you get them on? they're always just like loitering and they're like really like that you're proud of it for loitering yeah they're, they're horrible police officers and they're, they're really beating you over the head with how bad of police officers they are in this season uh tom we're almost to the end of everything i feel like we could talk about from these first four episodes but there is one singular other person that we have not talked about yet tom you know who it is it's our boy omar he is not prominent in these episodes, which is why we're only going to talk about him briefly. But there is one major thing that happens with him. And, you know, they're trying, he's back to his old ways. He's hitting all these places. He's trying to steal stuff, which prompts Stringer to beef up security at all these places. And he, as in um, his name, Omar, is basically trying to get back at Stringer for setting him up at the end of season two. And so he says, you know, we're going to hit this one stash spot. We're going to do it in the morning. There's going to be nobody there because they're going to get rid of people during the night. There's only going to be three people there. He thinks he knows what's going on there. It does not go well. A shootout happens in the streets and the two female characters who had been with him making all these hits, who I don't even know their names, but one of them gets shot and it dies. It gets shot right in the head and he really takes that takes it to heart. And it's really the first time since Brandon had died where you really see how close Omar holds these people to him, even though what they're like. He knows the risks of what they're doing, but he, I think, sees what he's doing as like foolproof. Like, I know what I'm doing. No one's going to challenge me. And this is the first time in a while that since Brandon that he's really been tested by somebody else. Yeah, he feels like a little bit off since since the whole Brother Mazone situation with, with Stringer. And I think you kind of see that with, with the other woman. You know, Omar is, is in the house and apologizes and she is just like, I think she says that doesn't do anything for me, you know. I think you, you kind of see that doubt even within his own people for Omar, and he's not used to that because he's used to, you know, kind of blind, I don't want to say blind obedience, but, you know, people that are always step for step with him, and you kind of see he goes a little too rogue, and I think he takes it one step too far even for Omar's standards, and it's kind of something he'll be battling for, you know. He's always kind of walked that fine line, and he overstepped it a little bit here, and it, it, it's very Omar, but again, you see kind of that, I think why a lot of people, why I think we love Omar is that, that human aspect of him and that, that sorrow that he has, that grief that he shows, the, the burdens that he carries for people that he really doesn't have to care that much about, but he does. And so I think that's what makes him such a fascinating character. And certainly it's not gonna be the last time he toes that line. 
Well, I'm also curious too. You just brought up Brother Muzone. I'm curious when he will play another role in this season because in season two, it's pretty clear he knows Stringer set him up with Omar and that he's going to play some sort of role here. I I wouldn't be surprised if by the end of season three, one of Stringer, Stringer, Avon, Brother Muzone, or Omar are dead. I would not be surprised if that happens by the end of the season because I see them all hurtling toward each other. And I would love, and I, I cannot emphasize enough, I would love a Brother Muzone and Omar team up. That would be electric. I, I, I could definitely see it. I think, I think if one of those four is gone, it's probably going to be Avon. Because I think, I think we're setting up to, you know, we, every episode it seems like we're talking about, oh, we're gonna get that Stringer Avon controversy. You know, they're they're getting further and further apart, and every indication so far of season three has been, yeah, Stringer's gonna win that fight. Well, and there's a strong indication too. I say Brother Muzone knows Stringer set him up. There's the off chance Brother Muzone thinks Avon set him up. And so I wouldn't be surprised again, like you just said, if Avon is the one that doesn't make it out of this season. Do you have anyone else you want to peg for not making it out of the season? I already got Major Colvin. If you if you got your money, bet your house on it. He's not making it. What do you think? I think uh, I think Bubbles' boy Johnny doesn't make it out. I think they're kind of seeing, you know, they're asking Bubbles like, you know, what's up with your boy there? And Johnny's like, oh, he, or Bubbles say, you know, he doesn't really play that game. You know, he just kind of sticks to himself. So I, I think Bubbles sticks around for a little bit longer, but. Then again, you know, he, he's kind of got the Angelo syndrome where you feel like you've gone as far as you can with Bubbles. So maybe it's Bubbles, but I think I think Johnny at least and maybe Bubbles one of those two. Interesting thing I hadn't considered because you said Bubbles. That whole thing with him saying, yo, you're snitching, you're with the police. And we've set up to this point that it hasn't really bit him other than, you know, Omar is like, yo, you're a snitch and has been in his face. What if like they're in a situation where his boy rats him out to whoever's like confronted them and is like, yo, he's a snitch, take him. And like, and that's the end of Bubbles. Like it could happen like that. He, he could be gone next episode and I wouldn't be surprised. Yeah, they're not, I, neither one of them are really, you know, moral beacons. So I wouldn't be surprised if, if, if he gets sold out for sure. Bubbles like A1 candidate to get sold out by anybody at this point. Wait, serious question. What is the opposite of a moral beacon? bubbles i guess like i don't know no i meant like what would be the term like what what would we call somebody that is the opposite of a moral beacon a moral like toilet i don't know i don't know a radiance of hell (laughs) well that brings us to the end of the first episode well first portion of episodes of season three of the wire here on talgo tv tom do you have any final thoughts for this week's episodes or future episodes uh, I mean, I, I just got to reiterate, shout out Wendell Pierce, great drunk actor. Teach me I mean, your ways. Tom, I, I think you already you already know all of his ways. That's Tom Shively. I'm David Arrow. Catch you back here next week for another edition of Taco TV.